Welcome to Hit It, the Water Skier Magazine podcast, presented by USA Water Ski and Wake Sports, where we catch up each month with current stars, rising stars, and legends from the past from USA Water Ski and Wake Sports and its nine sport discipline. This episode is brought to you by Visit Central Florida, the water ski capital of the world. I'm your host, Tyler Boyd. Welcome back to the Hit It Podcast. We are back for another episode to talk slalom skiing with none other than professional water skier Corey Vaughn. Personally, this is a super special episode for me as our paths crossed for the first time in the junior division in 1998 at the National Water Ski Championships at Okahili Park in West Palm Beach, Florida. We get to reminisce on the role of what that national tournament played in Corey's ski career. Corey has a unique journey starting out his water ski training career on public water to becoming one of the best professional skiers in the world. He is one of the few skiers that have ever run 41 off, and he is a top contender at every professional tournament he enters. Corey's road to becoming one of the best slalom skiers in the world is truly inspiring. As you will hear in this episode, Corey has already started an extremely focused three-year plan and hopes to take himself to the next level in our sport before potentially riding into the sunset on a professional water skiing career. Having said that, sit back and enjoy this interview with peace, love, and water skiing's water skier, Corey Vaughn. Well, welcome back to the Hit It Podcast. Super special guest in the studio here with me today, Corey Vaughn. Corey, welcome to the Hit It Podcast. Thanks, Tyler. Great to be here. I've been a loyal listener, and uh, with the guest you've had on, it's an honor to, to be here with you. That's right. And, you know, I tell you, Corey, our history actually goes way back. And so it's going to be so fun to, like, recap all of these things and go back to our junior days and what you're doing now. Um, and we've had slalom skiers on the podcast in the the past. I mean, we've had Chet Rayley, we've had Chris Lapointe, we've had Nate Smith. We had a from different angles. You know, we've talked about ski design, we've talked about technique, we've talked about how to take on the slalom course. But really, what I wanted to focus on with you today is your story, because your story of how you became a professional water skier is really unique, and I think it's going to relate to a lot of the listeners out there. And so where I want to pick up with that is, from my understanding, you started on a public lake, and obviously now you're one of the best skiers in the world. Let's take us back to that period of time when you got started in the sport. Yeah, well, I guess to go back to the very beginning, you know, it was a family affair, and they put me on the water when I was three. I mean, I think I wanted to, um, but I saw my mom doing it, my grandparents doing it, my aunts and uncles water skiing. And um, it was just kind of natural. So that would have been 1988. And I think at that time, it was actually probably pretty common to be getting started on public water. I think maybe what's less common is to go from there to here. But, um, you know, we were just a family that loved being on the water, in the boat. We rode every type of thing that we could get our hands on from Overton's. Um, you know, tubes and knee boards and wakeboards and skis, but we definitely um, had a passion the most for slalom skiing and eventually got an insta slalom course and uh, figured out how to put that thing in and out. We took it in and out 
every week just because wow. you know people that are public water skiers they know about the struggles of maintaining a course not getting it vandalized or making someone angry um just keeping it in one piece so we pulled it out every weekend we kind of drop it in late sunday night try to get a set before the sun went down and then pull it out like a do a friday morning set and then get it out before the weekenders started coming into town and with all the pvc pipes and the buoys and the <laughs> spool of rope there were many a uh, a family quarrel as things started to go awry laying the course in and out but um that's what we did and the other thing that was pretty unique in our situation uh, that just shows how much how crazy we got for this for just some some folks who who had a, a mastercraft and a, a love for skiing. We had to wait six minutes in between every pass in our cove because there were bulkheads like seawalls on both sides. And so the only way to get pretty much calm water was to take the ski off, start a running clock, six minutes. And of course, that's only if someone else didn't manage to, you know, come into the course like a jet ski or a pontoon boat or something like that. And then we'd have to reset the clock. So, you know, I, I always want to let people know how appreciative I am for my grandfather, especially he was my main ski partner. And for me to get like a eight pass set in, you know, back when we were juniors, like in the boys two days, that was like an hour and a half process for me to do one <laughs> set. And, uh, but I mean, I'll be darned, he was willing to do it. Yep. You know, he wanted, he wanted to do it. So those are great memories. Yeah, you know, that's interesting to talk about the challenges of public water with a slalom course, because a lot of these lakes, sometimes you have to find a cove, a place, you know, if the lake is really big to where the water is, you know, smoother than it would otherwise be. But the, the story, I'm kind of just laughing here thinking about, you know, six minutes on the platform just for the water to get skiable, because it can get so choppy out there, you can't even pull out for a gate. Right. I mean, so eventually, I would say somewhere in the in like the boys three era, we had our course was getting into kind of a state of poor repair and we were getting a little tired of the in and out every week routine. You know, of course, this was only the summer. I was also only a two and a half month a year skier up until college. And then I got a, a little bit longer season. So, yeah, we got it in when we could. We put that course in and we skied whatever it took. Um, but we did somewhere along the line eventually get a submersible course. So we had an air compressor on it. You know, we always set the course up in front of our dock, like in our cove. And then at least that one, though, we could kind of put up and take down mm. more with the push of a button. And uh, and that did improve things. But, uh, you know, there of course, there were still a lot of, of challenges. And it took a lot of, of, of commitment. But it wasn't, um, you know, when I think of commitment, I'm I'm feel very committed nowadays to what I'm doing in the skiing and and sometimes turn it into almost work, you know, because I I want these results and I want to strive for them. Whereas then we just wanted to have fun and putting that course up and down, that was how we had the most fun. So there was, there was not even a question about it, you know. At least we were all on the same page. It wasn't like one person was putting in the course for somebody else. We all wanted to ski that thing as a family. So that's what we did. Very cool. So you know, the challenges of getting into the sport with, uh, you know, a slalom course on public water and then figuring out what the slalom course is all about and how to go through it. What led you to competition water skiing? That really came in from my uncle. He, you know, he gained some more curiosity. He was the best skier out of all of us, you know, when I was especially a wee little guy. And uh, I think he went off to a ski school somewhere down in Florida. You know, he he was getting the magazine. He knew there was more to it than the nothing that we knew. 
And, you know, he went somewhere, took some lessons, found out that there were competitions, found out that, you know, we were skiing in North Carolina on a public lake, but that, you know, nearby in Virginia, there was a pretty active tournament culture. He, I think he kind of did the legwork and figuring all that out. And he urged us to sign up for a novice tournament. So my mom, my granddad, my uncle and I, we all entered. This was 1994, the Fawn Lake Novice Tournament. And actually that tournament took place on a big lake also. It was, it's a private homeowner's lake, but I mean, it's miles and miles long. So it was probably a little closer to what we knew. It, it didn't seem like what I, we know now, what I know now about private ski lakes. So we showed up there, not a clue if we would be good, bad, average, just wanted to go and check it out. And as it turned out, all four of us won our age category. You know, it was like boys one, women's two, men's two or three. And my granddad was like men's six. And everyone was like, wow, you guys are not bad. Where'd you come from? You ought to come to the States. As you know, and as most of our listeners who are involved in the sport know, you know, we fell right into this wonderful community of people. Everyone was very welcoming, very friendly. Um, we kind of were like, okay, I guess we'll, we'll show up at the States and see what that's all about. So that was our first taste of an actual, like a real private ski lake, Lake Holly in Virginia. Uh, we turned up there and, and once again, I did okay. Like I won States. It was like, okay, well, that's cool. They're like, you, you ought to do the regionals. So mm -hmm. anyway, one thing led to another. And here's a good story for, for all the juniors out there who have had some, some, uh, traveled somewhere in one of their first regionals or big tournaments and, and have met with um, you know, a less than desirable result. My first regionals ever was up in Maine. Only time in my wow. life the Eastern regionals have been in Maine. So about as far away as you can get in the region. We flew up there, boys won, all new at this, a bunch of new people, stuff we didn't know, equipment checks back in the day. We were trying to figure everything out. Anyway, it becomes my turn. It's a little rainy. I go out there, pull out for the gate, go through the gate, fall right there, one ball in the water, whole trip to Maine. I was a one event skier and that was it. And I felt, of course, you know, about we big. But I tell that story a lot now because I coach a lot of kids and you, you know as well as anyone, these things in our sport, they're just going to happen. And that's not the only time that's happened to me. I like having those stories to be able to relay and tell the kids, look, one day you're going to be telling somebody, hey, it's OK. Look, this happened to me, too. And anyway, fortunately, I had some better regionals in the, in the years after that. Sure. Well, it's so interesting to talk about that because our paths would eventually cross in 1998. But back then, we didn't really have the Internet to check the scores. We weren't really seeing tournament updates. And so you would hear through the grapevine of how how skiers were skiing at regionals and sometimes states to regionals. And then obviously... For the first time all year, you would get to where you were ranked on the running order when they would post it at nationals and everybody's around the board. You know, I was thinking about those days, too, just 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 how different it was when you showed up to nationals where you would go through safety check. And remember, you'd get a sticker on your life yeah. jacket. You'd go through this whole thing and it would really build up to where am I seated? Because at that point, you finally had your first ranking nationally to go look at and say where you're going to ski. So it's it's boys two, it's 1998, and uh, our paths crossed for the first time. And uh, I just wanted to hear it from your perspective because it sounded like, we talked a little bit about it offline, but it sounded like that that may have like started the appetite to 
take skiing pretty seriously. Well, yeah, I would say, you know, it's funny that we're here together today because you do have this sort of maybe oversized role in my whole water skiing journey that goes back to 1998. And and what you're saying is exactly right. We didn't, we had the, the rating cards, you know, you'd have to go get it filled yeah. out by the, the chief judge and the scorer. And again, we were, we didn't really know what we were doing. We, I went to three nationals as a junior, once in boys one, once in boys two, and once in boys three. And we just weren't really aware of, you know, some of the other, you know, like team trials or junior U.S. Open and things that we that was just in a whole different world that we didn't know anything about. And so, like you're saying, I only found out three different times as a junior kind of how I stacked up in the in a national sort of way. And I think in that 98 nationals, you know, I'd skied pretty well. I think I I'd won my regionals that that year. And so we're going down and. I think I was ranked in the top 10, you know, but not not some sort of, you know, heavy favorite or I don't think I was ranked for the podium, maybe like a seventh or eighth seed sort of guy. You know, it's a special memory for me in a number of ways. It was the only water ski tournament where my grandparents and my mom were at pretty much every one of my water ski tournaments. But I had a long distance relationship with my father and he really wasn't at any of them, but he flew down for this one, uh, which was, you know, a very... Uh, it was very out of the ordinary thing to happen. So I, I had my grandparents, my mom and dad all in one place at this water ski tournament. And I went out there and I skied well. I think at the time it was uh, a couple buoys at 32 off. And uh, so I took the lead at like the seventh or eighth seed. And then we stood by and watched as one person after another just didn't quite get there you know a couple people missed their 28 off and then a couple guys uh, got like one at 32 off i think somebody got like a one and a half and it comes down to who else but top seed tyler boyd comes out there and i think you smoked like four at 32 off you didn't really leave any question about it you know at the end for me it was a it was actually a great victory like to come away with second yeah, sure um, you know, that was huge. That was more than I was bargaining for. I didn't really know what to expect going in, but I, I was quite pleased with that. So you kind of loomed as this figure in my mind for how, probably five years until the boys three nationals is like, okay, well, this guy, you know, he's the guy to, to beat. And, you know, I would tell myself the story, but well, he's down there in Texas. He's skiing more often than I am. He's got longer than a two and a half month season. So what that did, I think was just reinforce my belief in my potential. I'm I'm not getting I'm skiing on a 1981 Mastercraft with you know, my granddad with this jalopy course with waiting six minutes we got no pre gates you know we we're just kind of this we I, my equipment is kind of piecemeal stuff that I've gathered over the years but it's 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 not like what I see today you know everybody's sure. kind of fresh got all the right stuff you know I never was a kid that had all the right stuff I was well, sharing and, a life and, jacket and, with my mom and you know and that point of the story that's why I think it's so important. Right. Because for a variety of reasons, people come into the sport. Some uh, for, for my reasons was it was just part of like the day I was born, I was going to be at the lake. Right. For other people, they just kind of stumble upon it. They have to be a part of it or whatever the story is. Your story is so unique and special because of where you started on public water. And you're looking at the mid 90s where I think the sport is making this transition to more residential type of neighborhood skiing. Right. And certainly there is a huge advantage to doing that, especially when you're training on, on public water. But for you to come into a tournament like that 
with that type of background to put that kind of pressure all the way up to the top seed, I mean, that speaks volume of where you were from a talent standpoint. And then it was, you know, this path. And and we talked a little bit this the other day is, you know, you make these journeys through the junior ranks and you start to see the talent develop. And then there's a point of decision, right? Am I going to be a regional champion, which you were already at that time? Am I going to try to be a national champion or maybe even more difficult than just being a national champion? Can I be ranked in the world as a slalom skier? Tell us a little bit about that journey, because our paths continued to cross throughout that time. But you you also skied for the University of Clemson. And then there was another decision point. And I just remember watching Corey Vaughn, man, 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13. I mean, it was like this rocket ship that was blasting off where it was like, man, this guy is in the hunt and everything he enters on a professional level. Tell us about it. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting just the way we've had this conversation, you can see we skip ahead quite a long ways. Like we kind of, I had some success at the the junior level. I went back to the nationals in boys three. I got a third place, which I was again, very happy with. It was a little higher than my seat again. And then going to Clemson for college, I was excited about that because it was going to give me the opportunity to ski a slightly longer season. Uh, for the first time, not just kind of only be constrained to summer break and you know, go down to the lake for summer and then come back to school. And that's the end of it. And I would say, you know, to answer your question about that journey, there's this thread of of kind of maybe blissful naivete that that has worked in my favor because I was so far removed from <laughs> the inner workings of kind of knowing what everyone else was up to knowing how good everyone else was mm-hmm. skiing. You know, I had these couple of touch points, boys two, boys three, and I did pretty good. But then like, and then I'm in college and that maybe could have been a little more humbling because we went to collegiate nationals. I never did anything particularly outstanding. I got the chance to ski against guys who I'm skiing against now who are really, I think, already on their path to greatness. I mean, obviously, Will Asher, I think we overlapped one year in college. I yeah. remember watching him and just being like, oh, my gosh, like we're not even doing the same sport, um, you know, and and a bunch of others, Sledge and Matteo Luzzeri and, you know, Thomas DeGasperi. I think we overlapped a year also. I mean, anyway, a, a bunch of great, great skiers, Kale Burdick, Ian Trapp, um, that I wasn't even comparing myself to them because, I mean, unfortunately, or for whatever it is, I, I, I don't change anything. I wouldn't regret anything. But. I wasn't that focused on skiing in college. Once I got there and boots on the ground, you know, I realized the message from home was you got to focus on your academics. That's what you're there for. Um, Ski, it's nice that you get to ski, but, you know, that's not really, there's no future in that. You know, I heard that a lot because, I mean, frankly, it was the the early to mid 2000s and the pro skiing wasn't a viable career choice, really. So I don't fault my you know, my mom and my grandparents from telling me like, well, you got to think about what you're really going to do because this childhood dream, how are you going to make a living with that? So that was kind of the reality I lived with. And the thing that was going on around me in school primarily was a lot of, well, frankly, partying at Clemson does a lot of that. And their their team is not, you know, nationally competitive in the way a ULL or a ULM or an Alabama is. So we're kind of a, a party team that likes to ski. And so I, I already knew how to ski, so I wanted to learn the other side, and I maybe got a little 
too competitive with with that. I really didn't make any progress in my skiing for four years at college. I had fun. I was part of the team. In short, you know, I graduated college kind of like a two or three at 38 off sort of guy. I mean, that's that's nothing that <laughs> compared to the guys who I was skiing against then and who I'm now skiing against professionally. I mean, they were already you know running 39 some of the time, but I wasn't aware like I wasn't comparing myself to them. I just kind of was in this other world. It wasn't until I was, had graduated. Well, I should insert in here too part of the story. Halfway through my college journey, I got offered the opportunity to be a summer water ski coach for a family. That's the Whitlock family. And that is the lake where I currently live and run a ski school. So uh, kind of a happenstance meeting, coaching their kids at junior development turned into, in a way, the story of my life. Uh, so in short, in 2007, I got to spend my first summer on a private ski lake. Mm. As you said, wow, that, that's a run right there. I mean, so your yeah. first competitive tournament is 1994, right? Yep. 94. Yep. And so you're you're really not training on private water until 2007? Yeah, not at all. Wow. And in fact, it had kind of gotten so frustrating by the by kind of that freshman, sophomore year of college that trying to train, like, I kind of just realized the gulf between what I would be doing skiing on on Lake Gaston where I grew up and then showing up at a tournament it just felt like apples and oranges like we had this old boat this course with no pre-gates there's long wait times rough water all these headaches it just and then I'd go ski a tournament and it didn't even feel like I could prepare and consequently I started skiing less and less just because it wasn't rewarding I, I couldn't replicate my results and anyway so yeah so 2007 all of a sudden there's kind of this all of a sudden, this fuel just gets dumped on the fire. I spend an entire summer on a private ski lake, and that is game changing. I'm getting to coach water skiing as my I'm making some money by coaching water skiing. It's just like my mind is blowing, and I'm getting to ski like a new boat. It's got you know up to date cruise control. I think it's still perfect pass at that time, but like current boat controlled conditions, and I started to actually you know get a little bit better in that summer. And then then uh, that was 2007. And then the next summer, I got to do the same thing. After I graduated in 2008, I got to coach for the summer, ski a little bit, and I was making a little progress. Like all of a sudden, you know, I'm starting to creep up and run some, some 38s just in the local tournaments. But that felt like a big deal. We were still on the rating card system and there was still no national ranking list at this time. And so what I knew from the guidebook was that an open rating was one and a half at 39. And that's, you needed to do that in a record tournament to get your open rating. So what that told me as I was starting to get that score in a class C tournament was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm close. I'm, you know, I didn't know how everyone else was doing it. They were, you know, passes ahead of me. I just thought, and my mindset was, I would rather be the worst pro skier, you know, finishing last place than the best amateur skier. And uh, just kind of like being a kid that played a bunch of sports is like, well, You'd rather get drafted and kind of be, you know, a third string guy than, you know, working at the the car dealership or something like I, that. And I and I got to pause right there. I love that mentality, right? I love that mentality because sometimes with athletes and kind of going through the same path you did as a junior, and I've seen it over the years, 
you know, that's a blessing and a curse in a way to experience a lot of success as a junior, because once you get to boys three, men one to open, you realize that this is pretty difficult. And sometimes you're not experiencing the success that you might have experienced in the past and may have trouble with the mentality of, well, I don't want to compete at the bottom, even if I'm on the professional level. You're in the complete opposite of that boat. You're like, bring it on, man. I'm just happy to be here and I'm ready to compete. That's right. Um, that's right. Uh, that was my thought. So, you know, what I had lined up for myself, I did have a job lined up at the end of that summer. I coached and skied through the summer of 08. And then it was kind of like, okay, now it's the real world time. You know, everyone's been telling me that it's coming. I was very fortunate that uh, actually some friends through water skiing had offered me a job in their company. Uh, and it was 2008. Many of my friends didn't have work lined up. It was a hard time with the economy. So I, I was proud and happy to at least kind of be independent and, and making a paycheck and so forth. But, you know, I kind of went into the winter. I'm going into the office. I'm getting my paycheck. I'm spending it at the bar, you know, just kind of meeting random people and drinking beers on Thursday nights and singing karaoke with a bunch of strangers, like not exactly, uh, you know, I'm kind of wayward. I don't really have a path going right there until somewhere in that office uh, about this time of year, like a January cold, miserable January day, it dawned on me that summer was around the corner and the families that I had been coaching are going to be out there at the lake skiing. I'm going to be in this office or out in the field working. And I'm going to be making about the same amount of money that I would be if I were coaching, except I'm going to be doing something way less fun. And by the time I get off of work, no one's going to be at the lake to pull me. And I'm not going to get to ski. And kind of this little bit of progress that I've made is going to vanish. And it was, you know, I was just nipping at that, that open rating enough and and I was just clueless enough to know <laughs> to not realize that just getting an open rating doesn't, you know, I knew it didn't mean anything about money. I wasn't, I had no thoughts about making money as a water skier to, to any, you know, at this point in my life at all. But I wanted to, I wanted to get that. I wanted to call myself an open skier. So, you know, somewhere uh, I did a lot of soul searching. I definitely faced a lot of fear of failure that if I walked away from, you know, a good, honest paycheck. And, and told everyone, I'm going to go be a pro water skier. And then I just kind of landed flat on my face, meaning, okay, I got the open rating. I went to a couple tournaments, but how, how was I going to support myself? That was a big question. I just, I didn't have an answer really. But my passion for this sport and that little child inside of me that read, flipped through the pages of the water ski magazine and, you know, and looked at the likes of the other guests you've had on this, this show um, you know, the Andy Mapples and the Chris LaPointe's and, and you name it. I was like, maybe I could, you know, just kind of be almost a little bit like that. And it was enough to make me make the change. I left work the last day of February 2009 and decided I'm a pro skier now. Yeah. What, what did change at that point was my lifestyle a bit. I started studying about nutrition. I started working out. I realized that I was probably pretty far from what was required to be a professional athlete. And I was, I think, even much further than I realized. But I, I made a transformation. Uh, I started a transformation right then. And then the, the only first record tournament that I could find in the Eastern region was up at Twin Lakes in, in New York in June. And I was like, okay, I kind of circled that, put a bullseye on it. Like, that's my opportunity to get the open rating. I got to go up there, record tournament. It's three rounds. 
I've got to just get a one and a half at 39. And then it, the dream is beginning. So it's kind of a funny story right there. Just a little aside. Went up there, first round, show up at the record tournament. My handle is long. We checked before and I realized it was not, it didn't measure in. And so they gave me a club provided handle. I went out there, got to 38, money pass. Okay, here we go. Come around two ball. I feel a snap. Handle breaks mm. in my hands. I'm in the water, but I wave at the judge, get a re-ride. They find another handle, slap it on there, take me to the end of the lake, come in 38. This time it's four ball. I got clinchers on at the time. I've got terrible technique. I'm just burying my shoulder at the buoy, kind of grab the handle in the middle. That one breaks. We try again. We get to, get the third handle, get back out there. I'll be darned. Two or four ball at 38. I don't remember which one. I get on the handle. It starts to bend. I can feel it. So I just stand up out of it. And I just hold the handle up to the boat crew and they can see that it's just completely folded in half. Um, so three <laughs> they, handles in a row? Three in a row. Yeah, it was wild. No yeah, it, it was crazy. I think I was just so juiced up and the clinchers and the bad form. Uh, anyway, they actually sat me down and they pulled the, the men's one uh, division, the rest of it, and said, okay, just like we're going to find another handle. In fact, what they did was they actually put a fit in mine, got mine the right length. Sent me back out there. I ran 38. I'm like, oh, and my handle didn't break. I was like, all right, here we go. Here we go. Two, you know, one and a half at 39. Go out there. I'm all jacked up in the water at one ball at 39. I was just like, oh, after all that, I didn't wow. even get over to two. But happy ending, second round, two at 39. Got my scorecard filled out. And in my mind, I, like, I, don't, I went out for lunch and I think I had a cocktail and then I went and skied the third round. And I was just on cloud nine because I, I believed in my head that now I've made it. As, as silly as that sounds to some, maybe, to me, that was a huge deal. Well, and it, it, it will pick up on the, the, the rest of that journey here in just a second. I, I think you bring up and highlight a, a point, and, uh, and I think this podcast actually does a great job showing with some of our guests their stories and the level of commitment that it takes to be a professional athlete. And I sometimes think that that's unknown. I told you the other day, um, I had taken three years off to play football in college. And then I uh, attended the University of Louisiana Monroe. And I showed up on the dock and there's five world champions there. There's Regina Jaquith. Uh, there's Natalia Bernakova. There's Ryan Dodd. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And I realized at that particular time, I didn't understand the level of commitment that they were already at so early in their career. And like listening to your journey, now that you've gotten the open rating and you've already made a lot of dramatic changes, right? You've already made a lot of dramatic lifestyle changes to, to get to that point. What's the next stop in where you're like, wow, I really need to raise the bar again. So, well, I had at first I had like a little nudge forward and then I had the 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 humbling reality about raising the bar. So we're in the summer of 09, get the open rating, you know, I'm feeling healthier than I ever have cuz I actually am eating properly, I'm taking better care of myself, getting a little stronger, getting my third season of skiing on a private lake. So that alone is just really helping. And I go to my let's see this would have been I went to one boys one, one boys two, one boys three, one men's one. I go to my fourth ever nationals. I'm sorry, fifth ever nationals as an open skier. 
So now I'm on the dock with Chris Parrish, Chris Rossi, Marcus Brown. There you go. John Travers, Seth Stisher, you know, like I, I remember just being, you know, I, I kind of my tail between my legs, like over in a corner, just looking at these guys because they're people I've seen in the magazine. I mean, shoot, sometimes even today, even though he's one of my best buddies on the tour, I look at Chris Parrish and I almost cower away a little bit. <laughs> um, cower from the tower. You know, I was kind of just this fresh faced guy that I, nobody really knew. And I didn't know any of those guys personally. Thankfully, I've gotten to become good friends with many of them. But anyway, I go out there. My granddad is with me, the two of us down at Okahili. It's kind of like old times, just like, you know, similar to that, yeah. that boys two feel. We got the family thing going. We're at Okahili. And um, I go out there. And once again, for a nationals, like I performed to my level. I ran. I ran, I think, two at 39 at the Nationals, which is kind of right there sure. with, yeah, ran the 38, pretty big deal for me at that time. And it just so turns out that that was enough to sneak on that fifth spot on the U.S. You know, we have the, the five nice. medals at Nationals. So my first open Nationals, I get this medal, and then standing above me is JT, Marcus, Chris Parrish, and on the top, Chris Rossi. Nice. And I'm just like, I'm with these guys. Like, yeah. oh, my gosh, you know, it's happening. I mean. Needless to say, like Rossi ran three at 41 and I ran two at 39. So we're still in very different ballparks in a sense. But it, it, my feeling was the story I'm telling myself is, you know, I'm coming. I'm here. I'm, 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 I'm closing in. I'm catching up. Uh, so then, you know, fast forward about three weeks, a month later, there's the California Pro-Am, my first ever true pro event, international, you know, full field sort of a deal. And I show up there, I've gotten myself just worked up to be nervous as heck. I think, you know, doing okay at the Nationals made me put extra pressure on myself that like now I should be at a certain place or something. And I don't know, the nerves got the better of me. I missed 38 one round, ran 38 one round, very not great professional skiing and, and not personally great skiing even for myself. And I finished, you know, towards the bottom of the of the pack and that was kind of that wake up call that you were asking about like I was like okay we we got some climbing to do from this point yeah no and and so it's such a I always think of Okahili it's like almost like when we were doing that boys too it was like the end of the day the sun was setting conditions perfect yeah. so when you talk about being on the fifth spot with all of those guys like the perfect day at Okahili I know a lot of our listeners have been to Okahili for the Nationals. I love that story. But you do find yourself in a different league when you now you're, you know, you're at a pro pro event that's international. So, you know, you're not going to make the podium with two at 39 anymore. And the next real memory where our paths cross is I think we're probably 2011-ish, 2012, probably 2011 in Milwaukee. Veterans Memorial Park at the Malibu Open, there is a massive rain delay. And I I don't know, I think I had seen you throughout the years when you were at Clemson, but it was like one of those spots in time where you just get to know a person better because we're sitting under this tent and I'm trying to announce the event. Well, I'm like, well, I'm not announcing for, and, and we start picking up. We start talking about all these types of things. And what really struck me about that, Corey, in that conversation, you don't come across a person in their life very often where they are just so dialed in and focused on a mission. And I could just tell this is a different person. This guy knows what he wants. He's here. He's hyper motivated about that. Take us through that period of time because 
you kicked it up another notch. Yeah, well, so, you know, let's just, we'll take one step forward from that, that my very first pro tournament, my second ever pro tournament was the following year, 2010, Michigan, the Global Invitational, happened to be the first pro tournament for this other guy named Nate Smith. Ah. So, so our careers kind of began at almost exactly the same time. We had the same rookie season. And of course, there's, there's slightly different trajectory to his and mine, but here we are still. And and so he, you know, he jumped way up real fast. So I saw that happen right in front of my eyes. Wow. You know, he kind of came out of the dark. And then the next thing you know, he's running 41 right right there in front of us. I think that year, 2010 was his first one. So then by 2011, like by the time that you're speaking about, you know, I've been looking up to Will Asher and Chris Parrish and Chris Rossi and, you know, all these guys that I thought I'm going to run them down. You know, I'm younger. And I got a lot of catching up to do, but I'm improving. You know, my steps are are coming along and these guys are, you know, they've been at the top. So, you know, that they, how much more, how much further up can they, can they go? That's what I was telling myself anyway. But then I watched Nate kind of do this meteoric rise right in front of me. I'm like, oh boy. And that's just a little bit of fate of the universe. You get paralleled with a guy like that. Jeez. I think he was 18 and I was 24. So he's, I also realized now he's younger. Yeah. And so I've got to play catch up to to this guy too and you know as i see these you know i keep going around to tournaments like that one and basically kind of getting my butt kicked but realizing that the only way that i'm really going to be able to go out in these events and excel and perform to the level that i want to is to put myself in that position to put myself in that hot seat if it means getting kicked in the teeth and coming back home and figuring out how to go to the next level then so be it. And I mean, that really is the case. I think the one thing that I've always been very strong on passion. I mean, that's kind of carried me uh, most of the way, I'd say. And I think maybe I thought that it could just do everything, just passion and motivation alone. But it, like anything, I mean, there are qualities of being a professional that you have to learn. And I think, you know, maybe some of the experience uh, some of some of these other guys have had of traveling you know, and, and learning to just show up at a tournament, go check your equipment, check your fin, you know, have have a kind of a game plan for how you're going to travel, be near the lake and, you know, have all your ducks in a row so that you can stay focused. Those are lessons that I learned slowly over time. And I'd say I'm in some, in some ways still learning, but I don't like to lose, but I was showing up at these things, putting myself in a situation where I pretty much knew that that's what was going to happen. Always you know, trying to ski my best, hoping for the best. And that definitely always kept me like what you pointed out, focused and motivated. I think just a lot of times I didn't really realize where I could be placing my attention to get the most yeah. return. It was like that, uh... I, I could work out harder. And, mm-hmm. you know, I tried to make my body stronger because you can at least kind of see that, feel that, you know, you're doing something. But some of the other intangibles, I think that those are things that it's taken me and perhaps I'm a slow learner, but you know, I've been on this tour now for about 14 years. And really, I think even this past year for me, I'm just starting to get to an understanding of how to approach tournaments and, and how to tap into my focus at a level that, you know, many others found far sooner. So what you saw and what you're speaking to, I think is just, I had push and I've been yeah. pushing, pushing, push push. And that's what I told myself, like, come on, you're not going to let anybody outwork you. You're not going to let anybody, 
you know, try harder. And, and in many cases, I feel like that's true. I've been, I've been given it what all that I've got, but some of it I think has kind of gone, you know, nowhere. It's not applying it in the right way. And, and so that's something that I'm still trying to refine. That, that right there, Corey, is a huge lesson. I don't think we've touched on that in all the podcasts we've done when we've talked about training. I mean, you can work really hard, but that does not necessarily mean you're getting the greatest return in the areas you're going to need to be successful. And crossing that chasm between having the, the passion and the work ethic to become a professional athlete and then learning how to balance it with the technique. Because you, you not, I mean, we could go into preparing for a tournament and all that kind of stuff, but along this journey, your technique is just unbelievable to where you are now, to being one of the only skiers in the entire world, in the entire sport to run 41 off, right? So talk about where hard work got you and how it developed you into a slalom skier that could ultimately run 41 off. Yeah, so just like I'm saying, showing up at these places, coming home with, I think, you know, the results, not only say if I placed middle of the pack and I wanted to be in the top 10 or on the podium or in the money or whatever, in the finals, you know, I've had, had many of those coming home from the trip, didn't make the finals, spent a lot of money, brought home none. And just kind of like, you know, you have to keep asking yourself, well, you know, what am I doing this for? I'm having these disappointed, heavy feelings. I'm losing money and I just keep doing it. Like, this is some sort of mania. <laughs> And I just keep, you know, trying to grind harder, try harder to answer that question for myself. It's always come back to in some way, this sport connects me with those days on the lake with my grandfather and my mom sure. and my family and that that child inside who who dreamt big and and, you know, wanted to wanted to speak out loud that he wanted to be a pro skier, but didn't dare to do it. And then even just to, to get the chance to be on that stage, I think I was for too long. I was overly impressed with just being able to set to be on the same water with the the Chris Parishes and the Will Ashers and the Jamie Beauchains. Right, right. I was like, oh my gosh! And and just to be on the dock with them and to get to you know talk with them, Marcus Brown, Terry Winter, Chris Rossi. These guys were very friendly to me actually, uh, and and that made me feel good. It was it was validating in a way that spurred me on, versus the results i wanted the results but I, in in some way that was enough for me that i just kind of was like making friends with rubbing shoulders with these guys i started to get to ski with you know andy mapple eventually and and i think so, in some ways instead of really drilling into hey tell me all the things that you know and he did share a lot and i and that was a big that alone is a big part of you know running 41 i did it on his ski after all but just getting to be in his presence. He invited me to come to his home. You know, I stayed in his house and to come and demo his ski, you know, and then eventually kind of the same thing with Chris Point. We became friends and I began to ski with him. Like just, I'd be pinching myself being like, I can't believe that I'm hanging out with these guys. Like these are the, these are the guys, you know? And I think some of my focus was a little bit too much on that. And then it was like, okay, well, I'll just, you know, I'm going to work myself hard in the gym and work on technique myself. You know, I, I've had sparingly little coaching over the years. I've spent, you know, you had Chet on here. He's kind of who I really the only exposure I had to a true like professional slalom coach. 
as a junior, my grandparents took me down there for a few summers for about three or four days in like the boys three type of era. And he kind of like blew my mind as Chet pretty much always does with, with someone. But I was just like, wow, there's, there's way more to this than I realized. And he's also been a big mentor for me and in, in how I want to approach being a coach also. But then it wasn't until much later getting to ski with the likes of Andy Mapple or, and Chris LaPointe that, uh, and getting to spend actually a season at Ski Paradise where a bunch of guys were coming through, the Seth Stishers of the world, that I got to at least get some, glean some ideas off of people. I mean, it was still kind of me better off on a private leg, but trying to figure this stuff out on my own, watching people that are better than me and trying to figure out what they're doing. And and maybe that kind of suits me. You know, I, I, I don't know because that's just been my approach, but I'm, I'm mainly self-taught. And I would say that actually coaching, coaching at all levels, you know, from literally the deep water start up through, you know, the juniors that I coach at the national level or adults, all those levels, having to verbalize what I'm seeing yeah. and kind of learn the mechanics of the sport. But basically, I had to learn that myself to be able to coach it. When I started, I was kind of a fake it till you make it sort of guy. I was learning as I was on the fly. But year after year, summer after summer, season after season, I feel like I started to gain a truer, like a worldview of how the sport works and then could try to apply that myself. Then there's always kind of been this, you know, you, you asked about work ethic. There's always been a little bit of kind of tension between you know, I, I run a ski school. I started that mm -hmm. in 2010, the same year as kind of my rookie pro season. And there's been a, a bit of a, a tug of war between, you know, focusing on the business and focusing on the training for myself. And, and that that's an ongoing thing. That's everybody trying to figure out that, that balance. That balance. Yeah. So I don't know if I perfectly answered your question there. I was a little bit of a tangent, but I think still I'm endeavoring to be the hardest working skier out there, but I'm trying to be a little bit smarter. Like I've actually written up a three-year plan for myself. I'm one year in at this point, but I actually have some framework and something to organize some structure to, to guide that process rather than just throw stuff hard at the wall, see what sticks and get right. yourself exhausted in the process. Yeah. And that's exactly a perfect segue to where I want to go to where you're where you are now. I mean, listening to your entire journey from boys one all the way up to this gear that runs 41 off incredible journey. But the journey's not over. And there's a plan. And you have a plan in place. And now as you're sitting back, organizing your thoughts later here in your career, in incredible shape, incredibly competitive at all the tournaments, have a shot at the podium at every one of them, you do realize that you're probably in a position where you're like, you know, but I am getting older a little bit, right? I don't have forever to figure this out. Tell us a little bit about this three-year plan. You're into year one, but kind of the motivation that's pushing you into this three-year plan and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, so, I mean, it really started with my 2022 season. I felt was pretty disappointing. I just never really went out there and performed the way that I thought I could up to my own potential. Results aside, I thought that I just kind of let myself down. And there's a number of reasons for that. I I felt spread very thin. I had a, you know, I was learning about balancing my life now as a father. I had a one-year-old at home, which as you know, as you've done, you know, three times over is just a, and once you have twins, you did it 
two at the same time. I can't even imagine, buddy. Hats hey, off. Hey, I wasn't a professional you. skier though. <laughs> Nonetheless, I, I can't I can't hardly imagine. But I was um anyway, you know, I wasn't as focused, I wasn't as energetic, and I I just didn't go out there and perform. And I got to the end of the year and I had those kind of heavy letdown feelings like, well, what are you doing this for? Um, especially because in many cases I had to travel away from my family. I had to leave them to go go to a tournament and you know I felt somewhat selfish in a way I felt guilty about it and so when it came to the balance I got to thinking to myself you know it's been a good run you know I have a couple of really you know some some good successes some things I can hang my hat on and and say I, I had a good run you know it's a long it's a lengthy career and I can just maybe go into skiing for fun and run the ski school and if I you know I'm kind of holding these three big things family you know family being a father being a husband running a business, a water ski school, and being a competitive, you know, pro athlete, I was like, man, it felt like something had to give. And I was like, yeah, I can't give on the family. Like, that's not going to work. Can't mm-hmm. give on the business. Like, that's not the answer. So really the only one that felt like, you know, it's the ball that could be dropped and kind of was being dropped was the, my own pursuit. And so I sat with that, but man, I just could not stomach it. It didn't sit right with me. I've just felt like that same, and maybe it's naive, maybe it's not, that same little voice that through the years was like, no, there's something more in there. There's potential that you have not brought through yet. And and I want to know what that is. So I thought, well, okay, if if I'm going to keep going, then I've really got to do this right. I can't keep feeling spread so thin um, and not like I can't balance all these parts of my life. I can't keep going out there and basically spending money to get results that just make me feel disappointed. So I need to organize my thoughts a little bit here. I started, I said, I told myself the same transformation that you made in 2009 when you kind of went from being a post college drinking at the bar, bumming cigarettes, sort of loser, sorry to deciding to be a pro skier and you made a shift we need to do something in in that order of magnitude i need to do something in that order of magnitude again um and i'm i'm very fortunate this time that i have a partner my wife who is supporting me also on every step of the way um it's it's really been been a blessing and, and truly amazing but i was like you know I, I need to put a time horizon on this for myself because i just it as the years go by to keep the fitness up, to keep the hunger, the motivation, the intensity, it, it doesn't get any easier. It takes more work each year. I, I don't see myself being able to do this in a balanced way five years from now. It's just, you know, I, I'm looking forward to being able to take a step back and saying, you know what, I did all I could. And, and I just have to accept what it was. But I thought for three years, I can get better. I can get better for three straight years. I had just read the book Atomic Habits, and it kind of had this idea in there about incremental like one percent improvements every day and that that idea really grabbed me kind of the right idea at the right time and that influenced the way i built this this plan you know and i had a number of facets and there's no way we're going to get into all of it i mean a big one the, the overarching idea was instead of these three pillars of my life pulling me in opposite directions spreading me thin i need to find a way to create a synergy so that they are all you know, I, I need water skiing to basically be my spiritual practice that makes everything else like lifts me up and lifts everything else that I'm doing up, not pull, takes me away and brings me down. And I need the other parts of my life to be synergistic to, to feed that water skiing. So, I mean, one of the big things that I did 
right off the bat, one of the first things that went down the plan was I realized that I needed to quit drinking alcohol. You know, that, that could be a much bigger conversation, but basically that had kind of been there with me the whole pro or since college. And as hard as I worked, I know now that I did a lot of self-destruction at the same time. I didn't count it as that in my mind. I had plenty of justifications for I worked so hard that I could afford to to play hard too. But in hindsight, <laughs> that was really just the the mindset of an addict that wants to keep doing what they're doing and not uh, not reckon with the the truth of the matter. So that went into effect uh, last January, and man, that has been a net positive all the way around. And uh, I mean, a number of lifestyle factors, you know, like that as well. Just you know, tightening up on my nutrition, trying to you know wear devices and and just get curious about my sleep. And I started seeing a sports psychologist just about a month and a half ago. Just bringing in other modalities, things that I hadn't been been exercising before, or like I said, maybe been working hard in a particular domain, but then leaving, you know, kind of have some blinders on to other things that that may um, have helped me, or that I could have been open to, and so uh, I'm trying to incorporate those. There's there's more to come. Like this year, and a big new thing will be working with a sports psychologist. We've had a few preliminary meetings. I'm I'm very excited about that. Um, I think I think there's going to be some benefits there. He's got me practicing some mental imagery, things that I probably could have been doing all the way along. I, when I look at it, I'm 38, and I think some of the kids now that are like 18, 20, these these super achievers, these high performers, I think they already have they have this mindset that I'm only learning now, almost because they didn't distract themselves with all the temptations of adult life first. You know, they're kind of like on a fast track, and so. I'll be darned before they all run me down. Uh, I'm, I, and, and like I said, you know, shoot, Nate jumped out there. We, we got on the scene at the same time. And he has obviously been the best skier in the world since then uh, with no arguments. As audacious as it sounds, my plan is to, to step on the stage uh, with him, all equal conditions, and be able to go out there and, and take a win at sure. least once. Absolutely. Um, I love it. I love it. No, and, and it, it has been... Tremendous blessing for the sport that we've gotten the opportunity to watch you guys compete, you know, through the the water ski broadcast company. And we were talking about the days when you couldn't really understand who was who and where people was ranked. Now I feel like we're as in tune as we're ever going to be. And it's only going to get better because uh, we can really keep up with. I mean, we we watched everybody travel over to Europe for a bunch of pro tours and then travel back. And then, of course, the world tournament. And so. Uh, this conversation really highlights something that now we can carry with us this interview into this 2024 season as we watch you compete. Yeah, and of course the the pro ski tour pro waterskiprotour.com website too has made yeah, it so yeah, great to follow. Yeah, when I think back to kind of where things were as I was coming into the scene in 2009, we were almost close to our, our in 2010. That was almost the low point. Actually, Dana Reed had just fired up the, the, some, the Milwaukee and, and Michigan yeah. stops. That was like a good new thing, but that was, you know, his passion was driving that. And then, of course, sadly, we lost him. And we were just kind of lost. You know, the events were not connected. They were, it was hard to track and follow, like you're saying, the results and what was going on. Of course, the website, the webcasts were nowhere near the level of the TWBC. Sure. So, yeah, we're having a moment right now. And you know, I know basically my plan is to retire after two more seasons. That's not to say I won't ever throw my name in the 
in the Habit of Pro Tournament or a Nationals or something just for fun. If I'm skiing well, like that would be great. But but to make it a 365 day a year obsession, which it currently is, uh, is something that you know I will put down and and walk away from. But you know I want to stay involved and see this momentum that we have built go to the next level because I feel like we are just on this side of a threshold point of breaking through to something bigger. We now have the broadcast quality, both in terms of the videography and the commentary to to bring it to a, a wider audience. I think we need to work on our formats uh, and we have a website so people can follow it. You can actually know when things are going on. I think we need to think about how we package it a little bit differently um, so that it's quicker, more action, more entertainment. For those who want to watch the all-day event, cool, but we need to come up with a, a truncated version for the average spectator. And I think we can get into that market. And I think we can get some high-level sponsors interested in sponsoring the tour. And like I said, I won't be there for it on the on the skier, the athlete end, but I, I certainly hope to see it because the sport deserves it. And I hope these young, talented kids that are coming up now you know, maybe they can ride this wave up. And I don't know that it'll get back to the glory days of the 80s and into the early 90s, but I think that we're poised to take a step up. And I'm I'm so excited to to see that happen. And if I can be part of it, then I hope I, I can do something. Well, yeah, that's certainly encouraging. And it's been so fun to watch it. And I can't wait for this season to see what we're going to see again. And the greatest asset that is part of that pro tour is the athletes. Like you're saying, these are this is a 365 day a year job where you're constantly training, you're constantly scheduling, you're constantly trying to put yourself in the best position to win. And we have the people like yourselves out there competing, competing and battling for the top of the podium. And nothing's better than that type of level of competition. With all of that to be said, I ask all of my guests, Corey, I water ski because. I water ski because it makes me a better person. And that may sound trite, uh, or worse yet, it may sound self-serving, but when I get right down to it, it's the thing that makes me show up for myself, gives me the motivation to take care of my health, eat right, exercise, get sleep, have the energy to to run around with my two-year-old and to, um, and my wife loves these things too. So thankfully we get to do them together, you know, we get out and explore and travel and I, and I think beyond that, well, touching on that, um, water skiing has always been for me a family affair and still is. My wife is my driver, my training partner. We ski together. Um, my son started last summer, same tied together skis off the beach, just like I did. My wife was driving. I was holding the rope, you know, so that was kind of a magical moment. And we're, we're um, like moments away of being back in Okahili, except we're going to be uh, on the shoreline and our kids are going to be skiing against each other. We're going to be the dads with the coffee. I, I, that sounds pretty nice, actually. I'm, I'm excited for that. So, you know, there's that family side that, you know, just brings families closer. And, and there's just so much joy that can be shared there. And then I think the, the third one, we touched on it, too, is the, the community side. Water skiing orients me into a community of people who, by and large, are wonderful people. In many cases, inspire me to, to try to be more like them, to try to be a, a better person like them. And also... By being involved, it compels me to show up for other people and to, to be a part of the community, to sure. contribute in that way. And the fact that water skiing can touch that many parts of, of our lives, you know, and I think those are all net positive. So in my mind, like when I started my ski school in 2010, a big part of the mission was 
to grow the sport of water skiing, that's almost like a, to me, it almost feels like a moral calling. Like the world right. will be a better place with more water skiing in it. There'll be more joy. There'll be more health. There'll be more smiling faces. And um, I feel very thankful that, that I get to see those, you know, throughout this, the ski season here in Virginia. And, and, the, and the beauty of that is, I mean, you've carried that for longer than a decade and you came up with the slogan, peace, love and water skiing. And I guess that's where it is right there on your shirt if you're on YouTube. So with that, Corey, I want to give you a handoff where people can find you because you got the ski school going on, you're coaching, you're traveling. If people want to get in contact with you, how do they do that? Yeah, I'd love for anyone to reach out. Uh, you mentioned Peace, Love, and Water Skiing. That's my Instagram handle, at Peace, Love, and Water Skiing. Facebook, my name, Corey Vaughn. Also, my website for ski school is peaceloveandwaterskiing.com. And I think that has, you know, social media links. You can find me that way. It has my email. Um, yeah, certainly get in touch. Come out and ski. We'd love to have you come for a visit. we got a place to, you can stay right by the lake and uh, and get some good swerving in. And um yeah, uh, I love I love that. I love meeting new folks, and then also, you know, having friends that I get to see uh, year after year through ski yeah. school. Well, Corey, this has been an amazing episode, and I think there's a lot of big takeaways. And if any of those listeners out there are finding themselves on public water and they're trying to figure out how to get into the competitive scene, I think this is an episode that they could listen to a couple times and take away some powerful tips. And I think your story and almost along the way that I've gotten to admire your journey and your, your willingness to train and your passion and just such a positive light for the sport. I want to personally thank you for that. Um, and I really do hope that uh, we're the dads on the side of the shore at a, at a nationals. And this time we'll probably be more nervous now, you know, with our yes. kids skiing, but oh, 100%. Uh, yeah, I look forward to that a ton. So I really want to thank you for coming on the show. Oh, well, thanks, Tyler. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. And yeah, that's what, what you said. I'll just leave any, any of the kids out there, you know, any, everyone's journey is different. Mine is mine and everyone's is unique. But if you have a passion and it could be for water skiing or something else, if, if your heart cannot hear you say no and shut that down, which is what I tried to do. I tried to shut down that, no, I can't really be a pro water skier. I did that for years. And eventually I had to let that break through and say, yes, I'm going to try. If you're feeling that inside of you, answer the call, say yes, take the journey, even if it doesn't go where you think, it might go actually even better, or it might lead you to where, where you need to be, but, but try to answer that call. Excellent. An excellent word from Corey Vaughn. Make sure to check him out. Peace, love, and water skiing. And until next time, we're signing off. Thanks for listening and come back and catch future episodes as we chat with water ski legends and current stars from each of the sports disciplines as we celebrate 100 years of water skiing. Thanks again to our sponsor, Visit Central Florida. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. We'll see you next time.